heard a child over there just say, that's very pretty. That was beautiful. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, God, you are truly indescribable in your beauty, Lord, in your glory. You're truly beyond our understanding and your wisdom and the depth of everything that you are. You are truly holy, so holy we can't even draw near to you, never mind understand that kind of holiness, Lord, but God, we thank you so much, Father, that as that God that's so high, so glorious, and so holy, you have, you've made a way for us to come to you. And in this season, we reflect on that, Lord, that there's a hope for us, that there's a way for us to receive the riches that you alone can give. There's a way for us as sinners and broken people through the gospel, through Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection, Lord, to come and to have life with you and to have riches with you and to have joy with you and to have fullness with you and forgiveness of sin, Lord, all of our darkness and all of our sin. And so when we come to you this morning, we come with so much joy and thanksgiving and a heart that's set free, Lord. We thank you so much that you have made all of that a possibility through your glory and through your grace, through your wonderful plan, through your decree, through everything you've done and your actions in the world. And since creation, we heard about this morning, Lord, since creation, you've been working towards that end. God, I thank you that we can sing these beautiful songs about the gospel, that we can meditate on who you are and talk about with our friends about who you are and that in this life we're not left empty with nothing, nothing to cling to, nothing to hold on to, nothing to run to, but that we have a God in heaven who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, we confess our sins, If that we have a God in heaven who is faithful to work all things out according to his plan, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for being that to us and being our Lord. Pray that we would submit to you, that we would have hearts of generosity, hearts of just acknowledging who you are and giving to you everything that we are, Lord. Father, I pray that Jesus Christ would be lifted up this morning, that each of us would be able to see him clearer, love him deeper, serve him more faithfully this week and in our lives, Lord, that he'd be lifted up so that those who do not yet know him would come to know him. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, um, I pray also for all these other things, Lord, that especially right now with a lot of people being ill, a lot of different families in our church, people absent, people very sick with some kind of bug that's going around. Lord, thank you uh, that you're with each of them, and I pray that you would heal them quickly. I pray that you'd allow that virus or that whatever it is to not spread too, too much amongst ourselves, but 
um, that it would not be too much of a disruption to our plans with our families and friends and our worship with you this season, Lord. And God, um, I pray uh, particularly for Miss Jane Wynn, uh, just with her health and the fact that it's so difficult with the caretakers and people that not getting sleep and things like that. I pray that you'd help her to sleep at night. I pray that you would help her to feel better, to feel less uh, anxious, and to have uh, more comfort in herself at this time, Lord, at this difficult point in her life. And I thank you for her whole life. I thank you for her faithful witness and, and for the fact that she has meant so much to us here. And Lord, um, I pray for each and every one of us. I pray for each and every one of us here that this time of year we're often going out and spending time with family. A lot of our family are not Christian. A lot of our family are people who actually reject you and reject the hope that is the reason we're gathering. And I pray that you'd give each and every one of us a dispensation of pouring out of your spirit of wisdom for how to navigate that. Should we boldly proclaim something to someone or should we instead um, hold back this year as we've been boldly in, in their face about it for the last 20 years and now we need to take a break and just show them acts of love or Lord I just pray that you'd give us wisdom on how to navigate that difficult scenario with family on how to how to connect with people who do not accept you and who do not really understand what this season is all about and Dear God, I pray also just at this time that we reflect on the fact that you are the Prince of Peace and that you are bringing peace and that you have brought peace. Lord, I just pray that um, you would also just be near to those who are affected by conflict throughout the world, those who maybe even here are filled with anxiety because of the conflict, the wars that are taking place in the world. I just pray that you would remind us even this morning that you are the Prince of Peace and that you are the king, the sovereign king, that nothing is outside of your grasp and nothing is surprising to you. And you're not confused by any of this and you're definitely not anxious. And Lord, um, I do pray that as we await that final day when you will set all things right and make total and complete and final peace, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful in our work of evangelizing, in our work of spreading the good news, that our hearts would be on fire for the loss, that our hearts would be on fire for the things that matter to you and not to the things that matter to this world, the things that are distractions, the other things. But Lord, I pray that our hearts would be seeking that your kingdom come, that we would be even a part of it with our, with our wealth, with our treasure, with everything that we are and everything that we have. Because of your grace, I pray that we would be giving all of that towards missions, our energy and our efforts, towards the expansion of your kingdom, God. And please stir up a heart for that amongst us and allow us to taste a small ahead of time joy of what it's like to, to just see somebody come and, and be made new by the gospel, to be renewed and to become a new creation and to realize, wow, somebody, the old has passed away and the new has come, Lord. Thank you so much that you make that a possibility for us as Christians. We get to witness that if we're faithful in proclaiming the gospel and, and we know that we will see your people gathered from all the, all the nations, all the tribes, and that eventually there will be perfect peace because you are the Prince of Peace. I pray all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, so our text this morning is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. So please turn there uh, in your Bibles if you have one. Um, and while you do, I'll just quickly give a little background on it. So our passage is, um, this morning is a very beautiful picture of the grace of God. So it's the grace of God as he sends his son, and his son comes into this fallen and broken world. And he goes from a very high point of tremendous, indescribable riches down to a place of tremendous poverty to come and reach down to us as wicked people, as lost people, as sinners in this broken world. And so to um, this, the context for this verse is actually stretches multiple pa- uh, chapters. And so I'm not going to just, uh, I'm not going to just unpack the entire context or read the entire context for you. But basically, in summary, what Paul is trying to do with this verse is he's trying to motivate these Corinthians in the book of Corinthians. He's trying to motivate them to faithfully follow through with giving a donation, giving a generous um, offering towards other Christians who are in need. That's, on, that's the simplest way I can put it. And so all of a sudden we're reading along and there, there Paul inserts this wonderful, really short but really powerful verse about the incarnation. The incarnation is all about what we talk about at Christmas time. So incarnation, I'll be using that word over and over again. It just means Jesus going from God in heaven to taking on human flesh and becoming like a man. I had, I had one professor, and he had a background, I think Mexican or Spanish, and he said the word for carne in Spanish is meat, and so incarnation was Jesus taking on flesh, taking on meat, right, to become a man like you and I. So that's a good way for you to remember that term and to remember and understand what what I'll be talking about when I go about this. So in order to motivate the Corinthians, Paul is appealing to this tremendous mystery, an amazing mystery about the beauty of the grace of God and and the fact that, that Jesus Christ went from being rich down to being poor so that he could make us rich eventually. And so we're going to unpack that and understand that. But first, let me read the passage to you. So 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. This is the word of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So that's the word of the Lord this morning. That's what we're going to be studying this entire time, is this one short verse. And so you see here very clear, it's, wow, like with me filling in the context and everything, you realize quite quickly that Paul's argument is not complicated. Right? His argument's not complex. It's pretty simple and easy to follow. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, his grace is demonstrated in the fact that he was rich. For our sakes, he became poor. And then through his poverty, he might become rich. So one thing I want to know is, one thing I want to do is I want to unpack this and say, well, what is a way that we can draw even more depth, more riches out of a short verse like this? We could just move on, but that would be a huge mistake. To just move through a quick little verse like this and not dig deeply into what it's meaning would be a huge mistake and we'd lose out so much because we would miss out on understanding the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the grace of God that Paul is packing into this one little verse. We'd miss out so much on the grace of God and understanding so much about the love of God that's displayed in the incarnation for us here. So we're going to ask three questions. Three questions that's going to help us understand this verse. The first question we're going to answer is, how rich was he? How rich was Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, before he became a man? 
The second question we'll answer is, how poor did he become? How poor did he come down to? And the third question we'll answer is, what has he provided for us? So because he was rich, now he was poor. What has he provided for us to make us so rich? And so in probing deeply and going more in depth into each and every one of these questions, I hope we can have a huge increase in our understanding of the generosity and the grace of God this morning. So if each of us can better understand the grace of God this morning, that's going to serve, just like Paul was trying to use it to, that's going to serve to motivate us. It's going to serve to drive us and motivate us forward to be generous, to live graciously, right? Jesus' grace on display here is supposed to motivate us to live generously and filled with grace towards our interaction with others and as, as, we, as we walk through this world as Christians. And so that brings us to our first question. We'll better understand the incarnation. We'll better understand all this big deal about everyone talking about at Christmas time if we can understand how rich was the Lord Jesus before the incarnation. So the first thing we're going to do is how rich was he? We're going to ask that, and based on that first phrase, though he was rich, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is demonstrated starting with though he was rich. How rich? So how rich was he? Let's go on to that. So the word that is used for Jesus' wealth here in this verse is a word that actually encompasses, uh, it, it encompasses not only like the way we typically think of wealth. We typically think of money and the size of your house and the things that you have. It's not only that. It encompasses all elements of what his wealth was. That's what we're talking about here. So it's not just material and financial, but it's also his eternal, his spiritual riches that Jesus Christ had before he ever uh, became a man. He was undeniably rich in every single conceivable way. Every single conceivable way that you could be rich, he was rich. John 17, verse 5. We'll begin with that. It says, Jesus Christ, there it teaches us that Jesus Christ shared the glory of God the Father before the world was. He shared the glory of God the Father before the world was. So Jesus Christ, our Savior, shared the glory, shared the riches with God before the world was. And so if we think about it that way, it's faithful, it's honest, it's true to Scripture to say that every single thing that God is in His glory and in His riches is appropriate, appropriately applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, the riches there is anything and everything that's appropriately applied to God in Scripture is appropriately applied to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so there it says, in Scripture then we know he was rich in power. Because why? Because God is the all-powerful one and the creator. So we know he was rich in wisdom. Why? Because God is the all-knowing one, the all-wise one. We know that he was rich in love because God is love, right? We know that the list of these things could go on and on and on. Any time in Scripture when God says, this is what I'm like, well, we can say that's part of the riches that Jesus Christ here embodied too, that Jesus Christ had before he came to earth. And so with this reality in mind, we quickly realize that we run into a problem. The problem is God's glory and his riches are actually not possible for us to fully comprehend, okay? God's glory and his riches, God's, um, God's entire being, God's entire uh, set of attributes, everything that God is, isn't something that we can fully comprehend with our limited minds. We will spend the rest of all of eternity seeking to grow in understanding the riches of God in, in his fullness as a trinity, in his fullness as our Savior, 
And so I'm going to sit here and try to explain how rich Jesus was to you in a few minutes and do it justice. I don't think so, right? I'm not going to be able to do that. Thinking about the riches of Jesus Christ before he came to earth is kind of like thinking about some of the financial figures that sometimes come across our life, but on a huge, hugely vaster scale and a much more extreme example. So for example, Elon Musk is the richest man on earth. He has $243 billion. So I can write that number on paper. I can. I can write it out. I know what it looks like in theory. But I have no way of conceptualizing what that can buy, what that can do. All I know is how much cash is in my wallet, which is not much. And that's about it. But, but we, have this, we, have a, we have a framework for this kind of wealth. It's beyond our imagination. Or for instance, the opposite of wealth. Think about the US is in $33 trillion of debt. That's what, that's what I read on the internet. What does that mean? What does that amount of money even mean? I don't even understand. I have no way of conceptualizing that amount of money. Okay, so it's indescribable. And so, in some sense, this is what I'm getting at when I'm talking about Jesus Christ's riches before he ever became a man. Right? He was infinitely richer than even these figures that I'm using that I already don't know how to describe and I already don't know how to um, help you understand. So the indescribable, the indescribability of the riches of God and the fact that we could never fully comprehend his riches is very beautifully shown to us by Paul elsewhere. I'm going to do that frequently in this sermon. Just go to other places in Paul because here he's packed it into one little verse but elsewhere he goes into big detail on what all of this means. And so throughout he's going to talk about this. So the indescribability of God's riches is talked about in Romans 11. Paul starts out there in this section. He goes, oh, so oh, he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Begin with that by saying, oh, he starts with oh. The reason he starts with oh is because he doesn't know how to describe it. That's how you start when you see Someone comes up to you and say they have $243 billion. You go, oh, whoa, that's a lot. That's the way that Paul feels when he's talking about God. That's the way he talks. That's the way he's describing the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ here beforehand, right? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, that it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And Paul knows, I know this morning, I can't, I can't do it justice, I can't explain these riches. But the beautiful thing about that is, by telling you that I can't explain them and doing my best to explain them, that already helps you understand them better, right? Doesn't that help you understand those riches so much more? I can't explain it. I can't get to the bottom of it. I could never spend every day of my hours mining down to the bottom of how rich Jesus Christ was before he came. That tells you something about what it is. That tells you something about how rich he was. So a few more ways to help us understand these riches. Jesus was rich in possessions. Talk about these spiritual riches. The fact that he's rich, like in every way that God is, immaterial things like love and wisdom. But he's also rich in possessions, like we read this morning in Psalm 50, remember? God says there, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all of its fullness. 
And in that same passage we read, he says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Every single cow, every single place. And not only that, that's what they were talking about in that psalm as material things that Jesus Christ was rich in before he came. But these possessions don't only include cattle and and the earth and all of its fullness. It includes every single thing in the entire universe. That's what's captivated there when it talks about all its fullness. The, The entire expanse of the entire universe So much like the riches of God cannot be described, something very interesting, I'm not a scientist, but something very interesting is that scientists don't know how big our universe is. They talk about galaxies, and some say hundreds of billions of galaxies. Some say multiple trillions of galaxies. They don't know where the end is. They've never sent a space shuttle to the end of it. They've never been there themselves. They can't look far enough with a telescope to find the end of it. They can't do it. It's impossible. And all of it, this is the amazing thing, all of it belonged to Jesus Christ before he became a man. All of it. To the extent of everything beyond what we can even understand. So scientists are literally there trying to figure it out and they're scratching their heads like this. So even in that sense, even in his material possessions, we can't wrap our heads around it. The riches of the Lord Jesus Christ are so vast and so beyond us. And to make it even more extreme, to make his riches even more extreme and more difficult for us to comprehend, you have to understand this too. When you and I talk about our possessions, when we talk about our uh, things we've made, things we own, stuff like that, it's always bound by, for instance, how many resources we have. So, For example, Seth, you're a woodworker. You can only make so many tables with the amount of time and the amount of wood you have. You could buy fancier wood. You can do all this. All of that stuff is bound by what you have at your disposal. Time, energy, money, wood, tools, whatever. All, all, for us as humans, it's always limited. It's always bound by the fact that we are not creators. We don't create the raw material. But for God, the amazing thing about God is when it comes to the riches that Jesus Christ had before he ever came down to earth, you know what happened? He was the one who created the whole thing. He created everything. So that means that for him, a sign of how rich he was and how rich he is, is to say, wow, any time that the divine mind wants something, it can make it if it wants it. Does that not tell you another incredible level to the riches that were enjoyed before Jesus Christ, our Lord, came to earth, though he was rich. He was so rich that he could literally make whatever he wanted. And it was at his disposal, from scratch, like that. That's how wealthy he was. And so I'm done now trying to describe the indescribable. Okay, I've done my best to describe to you how rich he really was. I'm sure we could go on and on, but that's what I've done. I've tried to describe the indescribable. So next, let's move on to the next question, which is, how poor did the Lord Jesus become at his incarnation? There it says in the next phrase, it says, yet for your sakes he became poor. So how poor? How poor did he actually become? So when it comes to the incarnation, it is crucial that we realize something. Second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son, has always been and will always be God. He has always been and will always be God. But there was a specific moment 
an instant in history in the womb of Mary that he became a man. So he, was, he has always and will always be God, period. But there was a specific moment when he became a man. And for the rest of all of eternity, he will be both fully God and fully man forever. Because that's how we understand his becoming poor. His becoming poor was that he came and became a man. It is this point in history, this climactic point in history that actually makes our redemption possible. It's the only thing that means that makes it possible for sinful human beings like us to have any hope ever of getting to go up to God, of getting to be with God, of getting to experience God's presence and His love. It's because God sent His Son to dwell on earth, fully God and fully man, that He took on flesh, that He was incarnated, right, and that He became a man. And so, yes, we know that the Son does not cease to be God. But in this deep and spiritual mystery through the work of the Spirit in the virgin birth, He takes on human flesh. And in this, we see so much. Remember the verse is all about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So much of the love and grace of God is displayed here. This is a major act of divine love to human beings, to the whole earth, that He would send His Son to take on human flesh and become a man. That's why Thomas Goodwin wrote, and he said, Christ is love covered over in flesh. Christ is love covered over in flesh. And this fact that Jesus Christ is love covered over in flesh, or you could even say grace covered over in flesh, is more unpacked for us in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8. Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8. Again, this is Paul writing. He's unpacking this same kind of line of thinking. And this gives an even fuller description of Jesus' humility, of his becoming poor. How poor did he become? Remember, that's what we're answering. There Paul says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So here Paul shows us so deeply the poverty of Christ, right? The, the, the level that he became poor for our sake. It says that the one of infinite reputation made himself of no reputation. The one true king took on the form of a bond servant. So he was a king. And he took on the form of a bondservant as a man, someone who's dependent, someone who needs things. And the one who could never suffer and die, the one who could never undergo any kind of hardship like that, took on flesh. Right? It says he, he, he took on flesh and he was obedient to the point of death on a cross. Even, the, even, even going to that extreme of an extent, to that extreme of a point to show his poverty that he would take on flesh to die on a cross. He became of no reputation. He became a bondservant. He even died on a cross. God-man, fully God, fully man, came down and he died on the cross. So let me just further illustrate some more ways that Jesus Christ subjected himself to poverty. That he went from this undescribable place of riches down to this place of poverty. 
Bible says over and over that Jesus Christ was despised and rejected by men. He impoverished himself to the point where he would face the most difficult and harsh treatment from other human beings. And this is pretty crazy if you think about it because he's the creator. He created those very same human beings that are treating him badly. He has every right and every power to call angels to destroy those people, to eliminate those people. But instead, in his meekness, in his poverty, to an unprecedented level that we could never even fathom, we could never even wrap our minds around, Jesus allows himself to be despised and rejected by men, right, for our sake. He allows himself to go through tremendous maltreatment that he doesn't deserve. The next thing is, he became poor, so poor, he became so poor that it's actually right for us to think of his life as one huge piece of suffering, one huge piece of poverty, one huge piece of just being debased of all of his riches and just being in lowliness and humility. Why? Because it starts out, literally starts out in a manger, it ends on a cross. There, and in between, it's just a bunch of ridicule and mockery and maltreatment. Sure, there were some people worshiping him. There were some people that hopefully, like us, can see the beauty in what he did. But really, his whole life from beginning to end was filled with suffering and poverty. And you know what's crazy about that? He didn't deserve a single one of those difficulties. He didn't deserve a single minute of suffering or of ridicule or of people spitting on him or of pulling his hair or of even not trusting a word that came out of his mouth. He didn't deserve a single minute of that. You and I, we do. We do deserve every single minute of every single hard thing we go through in some sense. Because why? Because we're fallen sinners living in a fallen, broken world. Jesus was not a sinner. He was not someone who deserved the effects of the curse that God put on the world. But He endured it nonetheless from beginning from the manger all the way to the end. The next thing is He became so poor that He allowed Himself to be tempted. Right? The Bible teaches very clearly that God cannot be tempted. As the Son, triune, God cannot be tempted. But as the God-man Jesus Christ, He could be tempted. So He subjected Himself so low that He allowed Himself to be tempted by evil. And He did all of this and He endured severe temptation without ever once sinning. Now, I want to point out something here that I think is very important. We might think, wow, well, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so therefore, his temptations must not have been that tough. He had all the superpowers to be able to overcome the temptation. I would actually want to prove to you this morning that his temptation was way tougher than yours. It was way tougher than yours. He can sympathize with it because his temptation was way tougher than yours. And the reason it's way tougher is because, think about it this way. Who is it that finds it the hardest, say, to lift up a heavy barbell, heavy weights? The guy who holds it the longest without ever letting it go his whole life? Or the guy who holds it for 30 seconds and then drops it like we do? Jesus held the weight of temptation his whole life. He was fully man. He was just as tempted. Not, not in every single particular sin necessarily, the way that we are. But he, his temptation... For instance, his temptation in the desert, 
was more severe than ours, even more so because he never gives in. He just sits there under the weight and the pressure and the tension and the hardship of it, and he doesn't resist. He doesn't give in. That's our Savior. He literally battled through the things that you and I often fail in, the things that you and I often give in to. He did not give in. He stayed under that weight. He bore that weight. And he showed himself to be a God who would go to such great lengths, to go to such deep depths of poverty for our benefit because he stayed under that weight and he never collapsed. And he did it all without ever sinning once. The next thing we want to see about his poverty is that the verse, um, the verse here when it talks about Jesus Christ becoming poor, it can also mean like to become a beggar, become like a beggar. So the crazy thing about that, of course, is that we talked about how God doesn't you know, need anything. We read in Psalm 50 how he doesn't uh, lack anything. But here, Jesus Christ becomes so poor, so weak, so low, that he becomes needy. So what that beggar word really means is it means he's needy. So when he's poor, it means he has needs. To think that the God-man who didn't need anything before he came, came and took on flesh and now has needs. He becomes needy. I want to illustrate to you these needs. But a few different types of needs we can look at that are just all so amazing to think about. He becomes dependent on his parents for nurture, first of all. The God-man depending on a human being for nurture. And that to the very point that he actually goes and dwells inside of a sinner. So the umbilical cord of Mary is literally feeding him and keeping him alive, and she is a sinner. The God who had infinite strength in his riches, infinite power, is here being carried around by his parents, taken care of in every need, in every way. He's in the desert there, remember? He was hungry and thirsty 40 days and 40 nights hungry and thirsty. He created all the food in the world. And there he is, hungry and thirsty. So poor that he would make himself. And this also, he can sympathize with us, right? He can sympathize with us in our weakness, in our hungers, our thirsts, our temptations, our difficulties. Think about this. He made all those stars, remember? The expanse of the entire universe and he owns all of them created the most complex science, the most complex things you can ever imagine wrap your mind around. And yet there he is in a woodworking shop in Galilee with his dad teaching him how to make wood, make wood furniture, chairs and things. It's crazy, crazy to think about how poor he became for us. To add on top of that, this might be comforting to some who are financially struggling Jesus just plain old was poor. He just plain old was poor. So he already went from these highest heights down to being human. But even as a human, he was a poor human at that. And we know that because when he went to make his sacrifice, when, when his parents went to make his sacrifice in the temple, they didn't buy the big lambs and cows and whatever fancy sacrifices. They bought the poor person's sacrifice. They gave a couple of doves as Jesus is when he was getting circumcised in the temple. So he was just plain old poor. Put it that way. There's also a passage that says that 
The birds have nests and the foxes have holes to hide in. But Jesus Christ, the one who literally made it possible for there to be such things as buildings, for there to be such things as homes, and, and for there to be such things as shelter and protection, the Bible says he had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He was like a sojourner, someone who was pushed around from place to place with nowhere to lay his head. That's all kind of like human dependency, right? Like things that he physically needed, things like that. But add to that, his dependency all of a sudden was spiritual. He had spiritual dependency. He had to depend on the Holy Spirit to sustain him. He had to depend on angels to come and minister to him. He had to depend like ordinary people, and he had to pray to God to help him and to guide him. So for example, when he goes to pick out his disciples, he goes and prays. He has to ask God for wisdom. He is the all-knowing, wise God, and he has to, because he's taken on human flesh, he has to ask God for wisdom and guidance. Such poverty. And this is, this is amazing. The one here, Jesus Christ, on the, the basis of our faith, the one in whom we cast all of our hope, the one in whom all of our faith is based, he actually has to express trust, and he has to express faith in his Father. So when he's in the garden there and he says, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. What's that? He's expressing faith. He's expressing trust in his Father's plan above his plan. And it's amazing to think that the God-man would be so low and, and, and have brought himself to such a point of poverty that he would actually have to have faith and trust in God. So this, I feel like, again, we could go on and on about. We could think about all these specific examples in Jesus' life where he just demonstrates his poverty so much. So to summarize this sort of this, this section on Jesus' poverty, I think we can all think of somebody, right? We can all think of some story we've heard or a movie we've watched of somebody who was very, very rich and then they became very, very poor. Somebody who maybe in the Great Depression lost everything or they went bankrupt somehow or there was a recession or whatever it is that happened to them. We all can think of people like that and some of them lost a lot and some of them lost so much that it makes for good Hollywood movies and it's very moving and it's, and it's crazy to think about that you can have that much and lose that much. But I want us to understand something. Those people's stories cannot compare to the amount that Jesus Christ became poor. Those riches to rags stories don't come close to Jesus Christ in his riches to rags story. Because the depth to which he went from the height at which he was makes all those other ones look like a joke, right? Makes all those other ones look like nothing. Makes all those other ones look insignificant and pale in comparison to this. Jesus Christ went from the richest of riches down to the lowest of lows. And that gap, hopefully that gap, that's what I'm trying to get at this morning. By asking these questions, we're trying to help you understand that gap. You could easily read this verse, kind of move on, right, as you're going through this argument that Paul's making. And you can miss the tremendous gap that there is between how rich he was and how poor he was. That makes his riches to rags movement the most amazing and the most... Uh, jaw-dropping of anyone ever. There's no comparison. There's nothing that comes close. So as a final thing on this section about how poor he became, I want us to think about something that Paul writes earlier in 2 Corinthians. Remember our question is, how poor did he become? In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes and he says, 
Though Jesus never committed any sin Himself, He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So perhaps the deepest and the most important aspect of how poor the Lord Jesus Christ became in His incarnation is seen here. In the fact that in becoming a man, He lived a perfectly obedient life And then he bore the wrath of God on the cross as though he himself were a wicked sinner like you and me. That's how low he went to the point that he would actually become sin so that we might receive riches. So that we might receive what? The righteousness of God, it says. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that serves to move us now into the next part. What does that mean? Along with the righteousness of God that we receive in Jesus Christ, along with this tremendous riches of being, having a just, right standing before God, what else have we gained? In His gracious incarnation, what has the Lord Jesus Christ provided for us? That's our final question. Or now we can consider, in what ways have we now become rich? Remember there the last part of our verse, that you, through His poverty, might become rich. What has he provided? What riches has he given us? So the first thing I want to say is, you might have heard this on TV or somewhere, this verse is not talking about material riches, period. Okay? This verse is not talking about you getting a better bank account, you getting success in your real estate dealings and all that stuff. That's not what this verse is about. If anyone ever comes to you and proclaims something along those lines, along the lines of, Well, Jesus Christ went from being rich to being poor and the whole reason He saves you and does that is so that your life now, so that your money now, so everything now can get better for you. If anyone ever comes to you telling that, telling you that, that is a lie from hell. That is is just a blatant lie that is not what Paul is talking about here. I can prove it to you and I will prove it to you in a second, but Paul has something way more lasting and eternal in mind when he speaks about the riches that Christians can receive in Christ Jesus. So people who think these riches are money and material possessions, what they actually do is they're fundamentally undermining the gospel because what God is going for is he's going for this eternal, lasting riches. He's not not speaking here about the riches that we receive being things that moth and rust can destroy. That would be very lame. It would be very lame if God's riches He was going to give me were just things that moths could eat up or rust could ruin. Things that could break down and houses that could have roofs that break. Things like that. That would be so lame. What He's here doing is He's giving us a much deeper, much better riches than that. And so the question is, what are those riches? What are the spiritual riches that we receive in Christ? And to give us a clearer picture, we're again going to turn to Paul elsewhere in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, verse 3 and following, I'll summarize it for you. You don't have to turn there literally, but in Ephesians 1 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The word here is, He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every single spiritual blessing you could ever fathom every single spiritual blessing you could ever need. And then he goes on farther and he goes and lists these things. And I'm going to say some of them here. The spiritual blessings, the riches that Jesus Christ has won for us are amazing. Starts out like this. 
Election before the foundation of the world. That's a tremendous gift that we receive in Christ. Holiness and purity. Adoption as children of God, accepted in the beloved. Redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. You finally have the ability to have your sins forgiven, that burden taken off. Wisdom and prudence and the understanding of God's will. Whereas you're a fool before God, whereas you're a fool without Him, He gives you wisdom and prudence and the understanding of His will. He gives you an, an eternal inheritance with Christ, right? That guy who came up to you and told you the lie that said God's going to give you a big bank account, he's trying to sell you a now inheritance. God's giving you an eternal inheritance with Christ. Add to that, Paul says, the eternal seal of the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our redemption. So we receive the Spirit, a guide, the Spirit, a light. The Spirit, a help in times of need. The Spirit, a seal and a guarantee that we'll be saved. The Spirit, a guarantee of our redemption. These are all things we've received in Jesus Christ. These are all the gifts, the riches that cannot even be fathomed that He has poured out on us in His wonderful gospel. In addition to that, all of a sudden, as people who are fallen and broken, people who are lost, all of a sudden, in Jesus Christ, we receive the ability to actually glorify God. We receive the ability to please Him so that our actions and our words and the things we do in worship can actually be a pleasing aroma to God. We receive that because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. I really do encourage all of you guys this afternoon, go read the first chapter of Ephesians to see how rich you really are. If you're in Christ, just meditate on that. Let that ruminate in your heart and your mind. It'll, it'll change you. It can't, it can't help but to change you, thinking on that, wondering about that. Aiming your life towards that kind of riches. Ultimately, I want to sum it up this way. God in Jesus Christ, in all of these riches I just listed, is giving us Himself. He's giving us Himself. A relationship, an interaction with, a guide, a, a love, a eternal foundation that's based in himself. He's given us himself. The ultimate indescribable riches that I described earlier, right? Tried to describe earlier. Those ultimate and indescribable riches, he's giving us himself, which is that. Everything he has, everything he is, everything we will be. It's all riches given to us by God. It's him giving himself to us. And the most amazing thing about all of this, crazy, the most amazing thing about all of these gifts and all of these riches is that we did not do a single thing to earn a single one of them. Not even one single one of these gifts. We had zero capacity to earn any of them. We were not worthy of any of them. We would go on without them for the rest of our life and not even know we were missing them. If it wasn't for the grace of God reaching down becoming poor, extending His hand down to save us, to choose us, to give hope to us. We would be dead in trespasses and sins. Without God's initiative, we would just we would be without grace. All of these gifts, all of these riches that we receive are by grace. By grace. Right? We don't have the ability to receive them apart from grace. Looking to Jesus. 
trusting in him, receiving what he gives us, loving him, loving what he gives us, loving God, all of this received by grace. And this makes us spiritually rich. It's a, it's a dad walking into a room and a baby, maybe this is coming to my mind on the spot. I don't know if it's going to be good, but <laughs> a baby's sitting there, not even born, maybe in the, in, the, in the womb. And the dad walks in and says to the mom and says to that baby, here, you can have everything I, you can have, everything I have when I die. Everything, son, is yours. That's what it's like. Grace, it's pure grace. We are that little baby in there. We haven't done anything. We haven't lived. We haven't proved whether we're a good son or a bad son. We haven't proved whether we can do anything good whatsoever. And yet, in Jesus Christ, through the gospel, through repentance and faith, we have this opportunity to receive all these riches, infinite riches, by grace. Spiritual riches. So now let's, let's reflect again. Why did Paul write this verse? Why did he stick it in here? It was to motivate people. It was that that tremendous example of God going from so high down to the, the sun going from so high down to so low. The gospel message of him making us rich through Jesus Christ. It was so that that would motivate people so that that would stir people up, so that that grace would actually push people out into going and being generous, into going and being gracious towards others. So, so, so since God is as gracious as this, then we, re, we really need to know, it's one of our final applications, we need to know and we need to realize that we owe Him everything. We owe Him everything in worship and gratitude. So in light of the fact that Jesus became poor for us, we should not go and ask, how much does the Bible say I must give? I mean, that's not a bad question necessarily to ask. You can probably ask it. But how much can I give? How much is possible in our budget? How much is possible in my life? How much of my time can I give? How much of my energy can I give? How much can I give? It's not a matter of must necessarily. It's a matter of can because you owe him everything. You owe him everything. The answer to the question is how much can I give is technically everything, right? The Bible says over and over again, offer your body as a living sacrifice, your whole life as worship to God. Everything you are and everything you have, everything you do. So in light of this Christmas season and what God has done for us, we should be generous with our time, our treasure, and our talents, giving everything to God. So you're obviously asking, well, does that mean I have to give every single penny I have into the offering plate? And honestly, if you can, yes. If you can, yes. But I don't think that's necessarily what we're getting at. We're not saying that you have to give every single penny that you make to the offering. There's people out there who have the ability to do stuff like that. We, are, that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is that everything is already God's. So give generously, give freely. That's also the other thing Paul uses this for in this scripture. Is he, is he wants people to give freely, just from the goodness of their heart, freely, not by compulsion. He repeatedly says that. 
He doesn't want to twist their arm and compulse, make it compulsory. You must give this much. No, he's, he's showing them this beautiful light of who God is, what God has done for them, and what Jesus Christ has come to do. And then he's expecting that that will just naturally stir up generosity and free generosity to people. And this should impact our whole life, every single aspect of our life. This should actually have an impact on us, not just with our financial stuff and time and treasure and talents and the, right, and the like, but even if, say somebody comes and they offend us or they ridicule us, somebody comes at our work or wherever and they persecute us, this mentality, this tremendous motivating grace of God should actually affect us there too. It should affect the way we react to that person. We should be generous in our interpretation of what they did or didn't do. We should be generous in how we seek to interact with other people just in our interpersonal relationships, right? Because, well, we've received so much and our offense is so much infinitely greater than the offense that they could have possibly done towards us. The hymn writer says this, he says, Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ, who would not gladly endure trials, afflictions, and crosses on earth, riches like these to secure. And it makes good sense. It makes good sense. Because why? Because Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And he did not come to lay down just a little portion of himself or to lay down a little bit of himself when he was offended or when people ridiculed him and persecuted him and eventually put him to death on the cross. No, he actually laid down his whole entire holy and blameless self. His whole self for you and for me. So we can offer everything to God. And since God is this rich, right, and this humble, this generous and this gracious, then it means that God doesn't need anything from us, right? It doesn't, he already has everything and, he, and it all already belongs to him. So it's not, it's not like I want, that's why I want to put this word of warning in. I'm not encouraging you to listen to this sermon and be like, well, now I have to do everything in such a way because God needs something from me as though he somehow needs me or he's somehow lonely without me or he won't be able to get the job done. The Great Commission is not going to get accomplished unless I come on the scene and save the day with my big bank account. That's not what I'm getting at. Our temptation from that previous point of giving everything might be that there's some kind of a transactional element. If I give this, then God will give this. That's not really how it works. It's just overflow of thankfulness. Thankfulness always goes along with generosity. You're a thankful person thankful for what you've been given, thankful for who you are and what you have, well, then you're just going to be generous, naturally. And if you're not, repent of it. Start doing it. Because you see this tremendous picture of generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can always turn to that. And the other thing is that's the most joyful, right? That's the most joyful way to live. You try to live in like a miserly, ungrateful person who doesn't understand the grace of Jesus Christ and how far he stooped to save us. And you're going to be very, very miserable. But instead, you get to live in grace and generosity and experience this. And so the last, last thing I want to say is this, like I, like I think we are all maybe thinking about it, well, we're going to be with family. We're going to be with people who maybe don't know the Lord this Christmas. And what's the best thing you can give them? The best thing you can give them is that gospel, is that love, that grace, that Jesus Christ has given us here. And so I want to encourage us as we leave this time, think about people in your life who you could, you could access with this message. 
this tremendous message of God's grace, God's grace, and that that would motivate you to share. Not only that you would share it with others to their saving of their soul if they repent and believe the gospel, but also so that it would encourage yourself. In sharing it, it encourages us. And in sharing it, in sharing it, it stirs up our own faith too. And not only that, don't just share it, don't just encourage yourself with it, but also meditate on these things. See, when you see a verse like this, you have this opportunity to dig deep, to meditate, let them ruminate in your mind, in your heart, to let yourself believe these things. I just want to say these things are too good to be true. Your mind, if you start thinking about, I want, like, in a purely rational sense, this is going to seem too good to be true. But let yourself, let it go. Like, let your heart go. Let your heart go and believe things that are too good to be true for you. It's too good to be true for you. It's too good to be true for you that you get to be saved. Really is. It's way too good to be true for you that you get to experience the grace and the love of God that He would become this poor and make you this rich. That is way too good to be true for any of us. So what are we sitting here worrying about if it's too good to be true for? Believe in it. Let that move you. Let that stir you to a life of generosity. Let that stir you to a life of meditating upon it. Just sharing it with people. It'll just naturally flow out. If you believe it, if you believe these things are true, if you believe that the God who owns the stars, who made you, sent His Son to be this poor, to save you, that's just, that's just going to move you. It's going to motivate you. And it's going to make an impact in our community, in our church, in our world. It's going to change. It's going it's to accomplish God's commission. Dear God, thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you that you've given us so much grace through Jesus Christ becoming from such a point of indescribable riches to become so poor as to give sinners like us hope, as to bring glory to your name, as to allow us to actually receive you as our treasure. Lord, um, Please help us to see that these things are too good to be true, but if we believe them, they will capture and captivate our whole heart and our whole life. I pray that you forgive us for our lack of generosity. Forgive us for our lack of, of uh, thankfully and joyfully and worshipfully pouring out everything we have to you. And renew us again this day that all of our life would be worship for you and pleasing to you and Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.